0: This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women.
1: This is also the birth of Ukrainian volunteer movements. Right, okay. On an unprecedented level. I don't yeah. think anyone has seen anything like this. Right.
0: We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The CSIS Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by BAE Systems.
2: I am pleased to welcome Marina Bajuk, a native Ukrainian, a Georgetown University biology professor, and founder of United Help Ukraine. Her organization is a charitable nonprofit focused on receiving and distributing donations, food, and medical supplies to Ukrainian internally displaced people, people of Ukraine affected by Russia's invasion into Ukraine, and families of wounded or killed them for freedom and independence of Ukraine. We are podcasting to you from the Halifax International Security Forum. 2022. So it's great to meet you up here
1: in the Great White North. Good morning, Kathleen. It's my pleasure to be here with Smart
2: Women, Smart Power. And thank you for all of the work that you are doing to help Ukrainians in need right now. Yes, um... thanks. So I'd love to start off our conversation by learning a little bit more about you. You're born and raised in Ukraine. And I think for our audience, what was it like growing up in Ukraine? What was normalcy like growing up? So
1: I was born in 1977. That means I was born during Soviet Union times. And that's right. very different from what we see and where we see Ukraine post yeah. Soviet Union. Right. I was born in capital, Kiev, in the family of doctors. Mm-hmm. My grandparents were doctors. My mom and dad are doctors. When I finished high school, Mm -hmm. I was going to become a doctor, too. So I went to a medical university in Kiev. Mm -hmm. I studied there for three years before moving to the United States. Okay. And growing up in Kiev, in the capital, this is the time where we had a transition from Soviet Union, a Republican Mm -hmm. Soviet Union. I was a pioneer, right? So I was also taught of communist ideas when I was growing up. My first language is Russian. Because mm-hmm. majority of Kiev and actually majority of people in Ukraine, they spoke Russian, and they mm-hmm. still do, not majority, but people in Russia. You could still hear a lot of Russian language around. But then when Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine became independent, things have changed. People were searching for their identity, for their language, their culture, mm-hmm. in schools. We've switched from Russian, that was the national the... language, main mm-hmm. language to Ukrainian, we've learned more about our history, of our culture, and that was a transition. It's it's very different right now. If you yeah. talk to new generation, you talk to kids now, they have very different perspective on what is Ukraine, where they come from, mm-hmm. what's their origin, right? Mm-hmm. From us growing up mm-hmm. and making that switch, yeah. mental switch that we're no longer mm-hmm. Soviet Union when we were kids, right? So because mm-hmm. you can see how propaganda works now, right? Yeah. Uh, in, from the Russian side. And it did work very well in Soviet Union times. My decision to move to the United States was basically that at that time, uh, economy was in poor shape. I understood that I wanted to do some research. And mm-hmm. Ukraine at that moment didn't have any ability or capabilities of me staying and researching some of the ideas that I had before mm-hmm. that. So basically, I was 20 years old with $200, $300 in my pocket. Yeah. I got a I got on a plane mm-hmm. and came to the U.S., and I studied first uh, as an undergraduate at Hunter College, City University of New York, and then I got married and moved with my husband to Washington, D.C., where I started working at Georgetown University, and then I entered Ph.D. program in pharmacology, okay. I graduated, had my Ph.D., and did my postdoctoral fellowship at the National Institutes of Health okay. in Bethesda, Maryland. Right. Research is a f- really interesting field, mm-hmm. and I love doing it. Unfortunately, I don't get to do it much these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got a, a number of things on your plate right, right. now. <laughs> right, and there are more important things, right? Although, yeah. if you think about... So, my research is focusing on finding mechanisms of repair in neurodegenerative disorders such oh. as multiple sclerosis yeah that's important too right? so that's also important exactly yeah so, so we need to
0: solve
2: these
1: things so you so can get back to I can get, more. exactly that's my goal to solve yeah. them quickly so i can get back to something that i love doing
2: would you mind if we return quickly to a point that you made that i'd love to tease out a bit which is the soviet union fell and The curriculum, culture, you know, Ukrainians began understanding and being taught their culture. When did that start? Was it almost immediate after the collapse of the Soviet Union, so early 90s, or was that something that started really in like the 2000s?
1: I think it's very different for people, right? So for for individuals, everyone would have their own story. Okay. Some people in Ukraine, very brave people, they Mm -hmm. maintain their cultural identity. Yeah. For that, they were thrown to jail, beaten right. up. If you had any nationalist idea, right, in, right. During, during Soviet Union, so you were not allowed to express your opinion and think about Ukraine as a country, right? So right. or culture separate from Russia. So this is one we're under big umbrella of Slavic nation. So for some people. It was not a big change right, ever, right? right? Yeah. For some like me, for example, even though my parents and my grandparents, it's a mixed family, right? So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm coming from a mixed family. My grandmother was Russian from Stalingrad. She got married to my grandfather during World War II and they moved to Ukraine. I have part of Russian in my blood, mm-hmm. but uh, the Soviet Union in general was, of course, uh, suppressing any kind of ideas about Ukraine as a nation, right, mm-hmm. as a separate nation. During '90s, when Ukraine became independent, switching language, learning about culture, and again, some people resisted, some people yeah. embraced it. It was okay. very personal, and yeah. I would say the biggest transition in Ukrainian modern history was Maidan. Okay. This is the winter of 2013-2014. And during Maidan, it -hmm. started with students who were protesting corrupt regime of President Yanukovych, uh, who was Mm -hmm. in power at that time. They came to Maidan saying, we were promised to be joined with the European Union. Mm -hmm. We want to be part of Europe. Now you're denying it and moving towards Russia. We don't want that. And so they started the protest. They were on Maidan day and night Mm -hmm. until they were brutally beaten up. And then a million people showed up
2: yeah. in the yeah. streets of
1: Maidan, in, in the streets of Kiev, right, on mm-hmm. Maidan, saying you can't do that to our students. They're expressing their will. They're peaceful protesters. Mm-hmm. This is what they want. They want independent mm-hmm. country, democratic mm-hmm. country with Western ideals. Yeah. You cannot deny that to them. Right. And so the Maidan started. And uh, it took a, a couple of months, right, so from November to February, with lots of brutal beatings from police and, you know, imprisonment of some of the activists. So it was a very challenging time, but people stayed on Maidan and said, we're not going to go and leave until we see some changes.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. And February 20th, this is when you probably know about the shooting on Maidan, when about mm-hmm. 100 people died, yeah. were killed. They were, didn't die, they, they were killed by Yanukovych, thugs, and the Maidan movement changed how people saw their country very much. So that was definitely a huge, huge boost to change the values, look at uh, uh, their country in a different way. And then this is when the war started. Right. It started in 2014. 2014. This is how I started becoming more active actually. Yeah. I was telling people that I was in DC in 2004 Yep. This is when y- Yanukovych was sort of trying to get in power the first time, mm-hmm. and we were protesting in 2004 <clears throat> in front of Ukrainian embassy, Russian embassy, saying yeah. that the elections in Ukraine in 2004 were corrupt and the votes were fake. Yeah. And Yanukovych lost at that time. So they actually elected the rightful president, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, uh, President Yushchenko was in power. And then here we go, 2013, 14, Yanukovych is in power, unfortunately. But here we go again. We're protesting again because people are brutally beaten up on Maidan. We're, as activists, want to... Advocate for Ukraine and also tell the story because at that time, Ukraine was not on the news that much. And being in Washington, D.C., we had ability to go to the White House, to the Capitol, talk to representatives, senators. We we tried as much as we could to just let them know how we, Ukrainian diaspora, feel about the situation and what we know about the situation from the ground because we all have families and friends there. This is the beginning of our organization as well.
2: At what point did you realize that you needed to start something here in the United States to help?
1: Right? So just a correction, I wasn't a founder, but okay. I was one of the, co-founder okay. the co-founders. Okay, so it was a group, before. yeah. Thank so you. It was a group of activists at that time yeah. um, in 2014 that we were getting together, we were advocating for Ukraine, but when we saw the Crimea annexed in yeah. March of 2014, And we saw in Donbass and Lugansk, they're taking the territory forcefully. Mm -hmm. And the Ukrainian army started fighting and defending their territory. This is when we realized that Ukrainian army cannot do it alone. They had nothing, pretty much. So we said we can do medicine. We were trying to save lives as, as much as we can. We knew that on the battlefield, they had no first aid kits, no very simple and life-saving tourniquets that can stop bleeding, Mm -hmm. so anything that can save lives. But on top of that, Army wasn't prepared for the massive attack from our friendly or brotherly how yeah. they call themselves neighbor right lots of air quotes on right <laughs> now <laughs> as activists we said we can do more yeah. and then in September of 2014 we United Help Ukraine um, mm-hmm. got incorporated we got our status as a 501c3 nonprofit and since then we began helping Ukraine as a nonprofit organization based in the US mm-hmm. But all of our activists and volunteers, so we were solely volunteer-based organization, 100% Mm -hmm. volunteer-based. And most of us had families and friends, and we had loved ones who were fighting in the East. Some people had relatives in occupied Crimea. Mm-hmm. So it was very personal for a lot of us. Yeah. But we also have members of our group who were Americans yeah. or uh, Ukrainian descent Americans. They don't have any relatives, but it was still dear to them to support Ukraine as much as uh, they could during those difficult times. Mm-hmm. But things have changed dramatically for yeah. our organization. I mean, the war has changed.
2: Right. But before we go into that, you described... The Ukrainian forces in 2014 is not having basic medical supplies, just underprepared, not capable of repelling Russian advances. We're seeing a very different Ukrainian military today. And so I'm just interested in your views on the differences between where the Ukrainians were then and and now. So since
1: the war started, Mm -hmm. Ukraine realized that, no, we don't have friendly neighbors. Yeah. We have to defend ourselves. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing that we were all very upset about at the time, or angry, I would say we were all very angry, is that there's a Budapest memorandum that was supposed to give Ukraine a guarantee that if Ukraine is attacked, Mm -hmm. Western countries would come to help in exchange of giving Mm -hmm. nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen. Right. And Ukraine realized, well, if something happens, we have to rely on ourselves only. It started with President Poroshenko, who invested heavily to Ukrainian armed forces, uh, Ministry of Defense, and basically definitely equipped Ukrainian army Mm -hmm. to a good standard. So basically, I think for a lot of non-profit organizations, either in Ukraine, because in 2014, what I would say, this is also the birth of Ukrainian volunteer movements. Right, Okay. On unprecedented level, I don't yeah. think anyone has seen anything like this. Right. So this right. is not just so a lot of people would not just volunteer one, two hours, like we know yeah. volunteering here, right? So you go somewhere, you volunteer for a few hours, mm-hmm. and then you yeah. leave, you go home. Yeah. No, this is when people and volunteers started collecting items, fundraising, purchasing, mm-hmm. delivering. Basically putting their careers on hold yeah. until they see that the Ukrainian army was defending well, well mm-hmm. equipped and everything that basically the, the army needed at that time. A lot of things were delivered by volunteers immediately Yeah, from abroad within Ukraine. This is something that helped the Ukrainian army tremendously, this volunteer yeah. movement. Yeah. It was absolutely it's ex- unprecedented. It's, it's
2: extraordinary. if you think about that supporting an armed force Mm -hmm. repelling one of the biggest militaries the most powerful militaries in the world largely through volunteer support that's that that is an crowdfunding
1: volunteer support both in ukraine and outside Yeah. yeah this volunteer movement kind of we, I think we were all touched by it, yeah. but it also inspired us and inspired our organization to see that Ukrainians are doing it. We also have means to help. And yeah. We have good means to help here mm-hmm. in the U.S. And we've continued through those eight years of ongoing
2: war. Yeah. So since February of this year, how have your organization's priorities changed or have they? Yes, priorities have not changed, okay. but
1: the scale has okay. changed Okay. Uh, Exponentially, I would say. Yeah. Because the needs have changed exponentially. Yeah. So. In 2014 up to 2022, we would fundraise for just a project or like, for example, during the active stage of defending Donbass and Lugansk, we would fundraise for any supplies that defenders would need. And then we switched more to medical supplies or equipment, to hospitals. Mm -hmm. So we would fundraise for one or two pieces of equipment delivered. So basically, we would have fundraising events, concerts, and participating festivals. And of course, the budget was small. Right. Relatively small, right? So throughout eight years of the active protests, mm-hmm. rallies, you name it. So before February 24th, January 8th was the first rally we held in front of the White House. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize that. Okay. January 8th, we were the first one that was there were just about 25, 30 people at the White House asking American governments, asking the U.S. government. To start sanctions now, to do more, Mm -hmm. to deliver weapons now. We're not doing enough. We're not doing in timely manner.
2: Right. As a country. Right.
1: And every single weekend since, we've been there. Yeah. Up until February 24th. We were sitting, actually, two weeks before February 24th. We already started preparing. Yeah. Because we knew... The war was coming. Mm -hmm. It was very clear. And several large organizations in the U.S., such as Razum, Nova Ukraine on the West Coast, and United Help Ukraine, we were sitting down and brainstorming, okay, what's going to be needed most? And of course, again, medicine, tactical medicine was number Mm -hmm. one priority. Why? Because we understood that if the invasion is full, Ukraine cannot only Mm -hmm. rely on armed forces. Yeah. They will need more people.
2: Yeah. Yes, to yeah. fight, to fight. Yeah. Unfortunately, the scale, the or scale. Just the scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how can our followers, our listeners, help your organization today? Donate. donate. That's number okay. one
1: thing. It's always yes. that's yep. always donate. easy. I think so. There are a couple of things. So, of course, donate is one thing, but mm-hmm. there are other things like people can do more in terms of advocating for Ukraine. Yeah. We okay. as an organization can do certain things, and even though in the past eight months we have raised over thirty-seven million dollars. We've spent most of it already Mm -hmm. and we've spent it on defenders, on medical supplies, on humanitarian aid. We know winter's coming. Yeah, food is gonna be a challenge. Electricity, we know forty percent of infrastructure in Ukraine has been targeted and destroyed. So it's gonna be a long and cold winter. And we're of course uh, trying to help people of Ukraine to be ready for it. Right. So, donate is one, but I think in the bigger picture, people can talk to their representatives. Mm-hmm. They can reach out to their governments and ask for more. Yeah. What do you do for yeah. Ukraine? We have to think of Ukraine not as defending just itself. We see that Ukrainians are fighting for all of us. All of us, right? Yeah. And I'm uh, always corrected when I say our defenders, our defenders, mm-hmm. because it's like I'm American. Yeah. And I say, well, no, actually, so they, they are, are our, our defenders. Right. So They're we do front need front. to help them. Yeah. And then a lot of people return to Ukraine. We know that close to 8 million people have left. Yeah but a lot of them came back. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of my friends came back with their families. They're not afraid of bombings. They want to be in their house. They want to be at home. And this is something that Ukrainians are just showing resilience. They said, whatever you do, we're staying home. We're fighting for our land, for our country. And that's it. All we want to see is victory. We're not going to leave until we see the victory.
2: Do you think that you're being a woman? has affected your decision to co-found this organization or the work that you do if so why if not why not
1: women are good at multitasking yep okay this is our superpower (laughs) (laughs) if men can you know focus on one task women certainly have a better uh, idea of how to do several tasks at once and i think this is something that a lot of women in our organization do yeah so they multitask they have families they have jobs and they have this organization that they dedicate their time and we have several co-founders and now members of our board and also our volunteers and staff members who are dedicating their time to run this organization and they do everything to help ukraine but at the same time they're successful in other ways but also Choosing some of the projects, some of the programs, I think, we come from a motherly perspective, I would Mm -hmm. say, right? So we want to make sure that people survive, they get enough help, and they're taken care of. We have started several psychological projects this year, Mm -hmm. and those are for rehabilitation of children with post-war trauma. This is something that will go on for years, unfortunately. But a lot of women volunteers here in the U.S. and in our organization and in Ukraine, they have kids, right? So for us as mothers, when we see a child who is only expressing fear, is not able to talk and really distressed, some children, they've seen such horrors of wars that... It's just unimaginable. So for me personally, it was a project that I said we should definitely invest and fundraise mm-hmm. for. It is a separate focus then, yeah. for organization that we started this year. Mm-hmm. But I think it was uh, very important to provide this psychological assistance Absolutely. to children immediately. Yeah. right? So yeah. you don't want to wait because no, you want choose. to intervene as soon as possible. So Absolutely. we provided some special toy therapy to over six thousand children in ukraine and we're continuing doing it in other ways just this is one project but we're trying to see how we can cooperate with ministry of education to provide some of the equipment toys educational material to bomb shelters so think about it children in ukraine are sitting in bomb shelters now right Uh, and this is where they learn this is in-person education done in a bomb shelter And of course, you can imagine a bomb shelter with no electricity. So you're sitting in a basement, in a bunker, bomb shelter, and no lights. So we're trying to continue a project to equip bomb shelters with everything that they need to be sustainable for a certain period of time. And kids can have some fun. I don't think it's fun to sit in a bomb shelter, but at least they would have some material to... Some outlets. uh, Something something that they can do, yeah. Coming from a medical background, having my father still in Kiev He still works in the clinic. He refused to leave and he refused to leave his patients. So knowing how much is needed in terms of medical supplies and equipment in Ukraine, this is another program that we're really focusing on. And in that program, you think about one clinic would get 90 to 120, Mm -hmm. let's say on average, 100 wounded a day, just one clinic. And, of course, they're not equipped to maintain that number of patients, right, wounded patients. And it's a different type of care. Mm -hmm. So we have several interesting programs that we're trying to help doctors in Ukraine. And those people are so brave. And they're my heroes because we talk to them on a regular basis. So one of the biggest strengths of our organization is that we have a great network on the ground. Yeah because of our personal connections because of connections that we've established before and we don't just send eight we know exactly who needs what and then you talk to a doctor and he said i have one operating room i need five so we just say okay Okay. you need five we'll get those for you doctors there they work regular shifts monday to friday at his clinic it goes to the front lines to operate friday to monday
2: thank you so much for joining us marina and giving us this insight into your work what's happening in Ukraine on the ground. And I encourage our listeners to check out your organization and keep Ukraine on the agenda. Thank Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank you for having me. Thank you. you.
0: Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJMcInnes1. Thanks for listening and join us next time. The CSIS Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by BAE Systems.